Welcome back, folks. This is Mark Steiner right here on The Mark Steiner Show and your source for cool jazz and more. WEAA 88.9 FM, the voice of the community. We're about to hear a conversation that I had with Dr. Dan Siegel, who wrote the book Mind, A Journey to the Heart of Being Human, about epigenetics, about how the history of our people affects our behavior and more. It's a fascinating conversation. And Dr. Dan Siegel is also sort of doing a project in Baltimore with Baltimore Vision and Action to support Baltimore in developing creative pathways to increasing connection and collaboration to support well-being of everyone in our communities. You can get more information at info at baltimorevisionaction.org. Stay tuned for the conversation with Dr. Dan Siegel. And then, let me start with you dancing. I'm curious, take us back a little bit. This theory you developed versus your pediatrician, your psychiatrist, something happened to you in medical school that made this thinking process for you erupt about how we manage ourselves as humans. Exactly. So when I went to medical school, um, for some reason, the professors treated their patients as if they had no internal center of feelings or thoughts or meaning, the story of their lives. They treated them as if they were just bags of molecules. So I ended up... It's, <laughs> it's basically true. I mean, you feel that a lot with physicians. You do. Happen. Yeah, right. I, I right, know, right, exactly. Right, and what does that right. feel like when that happens, Mark? It's, you're uh, objectified and you're somewhere else. You're not. You're an other that there's no human... Connection whatsoever. So this lack of a human connection made me so disappointed and so disillusioned I dropped out of school. And when I, this is back in 1980, and when I dropped out of school, it was in that year that John Lennon was assassinated. Oh, yeah, right. And I realized that the mind, because the person who assassinated him thought he himself was John Lennon, the mind of someone can be so confused that can end up killing someone like Lennon. And it made me realize that the mind was really, really important and even if my professors didn't acknowledge there was a mind, we should be able to see it. So I made up this word, mind sight. And when I decided to go back to school, I would study my professors and see if they had mind sight or not. And I noticed the patients who had physicians who were my teachers who didn't have mind sight didn't do so well. And those that had a therapist or a, a physician who was filled with mind sight they did better. Now, what do you mean when you say didn't do so well? We're we talking about psychologically, we're we talking about physically? Well, you mean if, as a medical medically? student, it was psychologically. Okay. Later studies would show, uh, for example, that if you go with a common cold mm-hmm. and you see your physician, and your physician just takes a moment to say, hey, Mark, you know, you're a student now, and this is May, and you have finals coming up, right? And you go, yeah. This must be so frustrating for you. That's an emotion to have a common cold, to have this cold. But here's what I want you to do. Do X, Y, and Z. So that's case one. Case two is similar controlled set. A person comes in with a cold. The doctor says, okay, here's what I want you to do. You have a cold, do X, Y, and Z. But no empathic comment. The people who got just 30 seconds of having their mind, their feelings and thoughts identified and respected by the physician, even for a common cold, got over their cold a day sooner. And when they tested their blood, their immune system was much more robust just with that one comment. So when we connect with each other, we have a sense of belonging. We develop a feeling of trust. And that connection is what we all need, not just with a physician, of course, but with each other in communities. And so when you identify the mind, you're actually giving yourself an opportunity to allow us to join with each other. And everything changes, not just in the psychology of it, not just in the feeling this feels good, Mm -hmm. but my colleagues and I have 
looked at the theories behind this, and my colleagues have done the empirical studies to show the following things. When you develop a mind that has what's called presence, you actually not only improve your immune system, like that showed with relational presence, but you actually change the molecules in your body that sit on top of your genes that help you prevent inflammation. That's called epigenetic control. Epi is on top of and on top of your genes, epigenetic control. Number two, you actually optimize the level of an enzyme called telomerase. Mm-hmm. And when you do that, you actually repair and maintain the ends of your chromosomes so your cells are healthier. And the best predictor of that is how present you are in life. What you do with your mind changes the molecules of your body. So whether that's in a relationship with a physician or with yourself or even in communities like in Baltimore, right. you can actually teach people to be more present so they have a sense of belonging and trust. And everything changes when the mind is seen clearly like that, when mindsight is taught and honored with different people. So what you just described, I mean, there's a lot to unpack here. Yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah, that's right. That's why my talks are usually eight hours long or three-day retreat. <laughs> Do you have a break? No, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. So because, I mean, one of the things that, that, that the first thing that popped in my mind as you were talking was the, which may not be directly in, in terms of involved in what you were describing, was that many people who talked, I've interviewed and thought about over the years, talk about genetic memory, mm-hmm. right? Whether it's gen- genetic memory of being black in America, genetic, genetic memory of being a Jew in Western Europe, mm-hmm. genetic memories of different people, and what the sense of what the reality of social persecution does to a people, but also does to the oppressor's mindset, but also does the, the uh, people who've been oppressed, especially their mindset, and how that carries forth through generations because of the interaction between your molecular structure, your neurological structure, and who we are. Right. That's basically the spirit of who we are, right? Yeah. I mean, so this is something I think that is not commonly talked about enough in terms of why we behave the way we do as human beings and how we interact with each other. Totally. Well, two things, two things. We just went to this incredible museum in Baltimore called Great Blacks and Wax. Oh, yeah, sure. I know very well. I know the people who started it, yeah. And amazing that they did that yeah. and just a, a powerful and painful story of African-American history through slavery. And so one way of understanding that, and, and it relates to what you're talking about, about Jews in Western Europe, I was the psychiatrist for the survivors of the Shoah Foundation where we collected 55,000 interviews of people who survived that assault. And whether it's slavery or the Holocaust or genocide all around the world, what we have here is the capacity of human beings to actually treat other human beings as if they don't have minds. So that's the first thing to say. The epigenetic thing you're talking about, about how do we hold this in ourselves? We now know that while the genes themselves may not change, we change the molecules on top of genes, these epigenetic controls, we pass them through our egg and sperm. And so literally you inherit not genetic changes, that would be inaccurate, from change, that is from experience through a Holocaust or slavery, but you inherit epigenetic modifications. So for example, you can be very vigilant for danger or you could not trust or there can be a tendency to be very you know, wary and anxious and that can drive all sorts of reactions. So luckily, we can actually work through those epigenetic things we inherit 
so that we can actually free ourselves from that legacy of an oppressive past. So one of the things you were about to talk about was epigenetics and how I think you were saying that the behavioral issues we have internally and how they translate themselves externally are not necessarily genetically based, but with the understanding of epigenetics and the molecular structure, it's more behavioral. Could you, could you get into that a bit more to explain what you were talking about? Yeah, the issue is that we have in each of our cells, except red blood cells, we have a nucleus which has chromosomes which are made of DNA. And the DNA has the, our genes which determine the color of our hair, the color of our skin, even things about our personality. So you can have within genes something you inherit. And that changes slowly over time. Our genes change. What we've learned in the last 10 or 15 years is that there are molecules that sit on top of the genes. So that's, we use the word epi, epigenetics. And these are molecules that are like librarians in a library. So like a, just like a librarian can say, hey, please read this book, please read this book. Or if he or she doesn't like a book, puts it in the closet. No one sees it. So no matter what the book says, you know, if that book doesn't get read, it doesn't impact the world. That's the power of a librarian. Well, that's the power of an epigenetic molecule. So these are not genes. They're histones and methyl groups. You don't need to worry about that. They're not DNA, but they sit on top of the DNA. And what do they do? And what they do is they are the librarians of the books of your genes. And they say, hey, this gene that determines how wary you are of strangers, let's up its expression. So more people are reading, more people are reading it. So when you're out in the world, you see someone who gives you a funny glance, you're ready to fight them or you're ready to run from them. So you're very vigilant for danger. So what we've been able to demonstrate as a humanity that you have, number one, your epigenetic molecules change based on experience. This is mind-blowing stuff. So let's say you're a slave and you're in slavery or you're in the Holocaust and you're being put in a concentration camp. Your epigenetic changes will actually influence how these genes are being expressed in you in that moment. Then depending on the timing, how your epigenetic librarians basically are changing in your lifetime based on experience, it's going to change how your brain functions in your lifetime, but then it goes to your sperm or your egg, depending on your age. Mm -hmm. And then when you conceive a child, your experience-changed librarians, your experience-changed epigenetics do get passed through your sperm and egg so that your child, or sometimes it's even depending on the timing, your grandchildren will achieve the same epigenetic librarian changes, like I'm vigilant for danger, that you acquired when you had the direct experience. So even if you as, let's say, a grandchild never meet your grandparent, you may have all the ways they adapt to their traumas. And then that can be passed on to that grandchild's own children and grandchildren. So when you talk about inheriting how you responded to a traumatic oppression, epigenetics is a more likely way we do that by, for example, being wary of danger. Or if it's about food, we can even show in studies of a 500-year history uh, up in Sweden, you can show that depending on when there was a famine, um, you will respond by saying, oh, my God, there's no food. I'm going to hold on to all the calories. Then you can pass that on to your grandchildren. So even if they're not in a famine, 
their epigenetic changes say, oh, my God, I better hold on to the calories. So they're eating the same amount of food as their friends, but they're holding on to the calories. They get overweight, and they're much more likely to get diabetes being overweight than their friends who didn't inherit the same epigenetic changes. So that's how we're now seeing that in Holocaust studies, that we, we inherit the way our grandparents adapted to stressful experiences. And so your argument is these are not, these are, the, your, your work is saying these are not genetic changes that actually change our DNA and our genetic structure, but they change the way that structure is dictated to molecularly. And you're saying that, so that, that can be affected by behavioral change, by human interaction. Exactly, exactly right. So the way to say it is you inherit epigenetic adaptations to experience from your ancestors, and the epigenetic changes determine the expression of genes, not the genes themselves, but how they're expressed. And how they're expressed actually is how they shape the way your brain functions or your metabolism functions and how your body functions, essentially. And then how your body functions affects how you interact with other people and, and the world, like how you interact with food, for example. So these are things that are now established that we didn't know 15 years ago. So when you, the stuff I've been reading that you've been saying and writing, so um, this theory about getting insight into ourselves that's connected to empathy, you talk about this being an integral system, integrated system, not an integral, um, that has to do with this, the, the notion of interpersonal neurobiology, right? Yeah. So, so, what, mm -hmm. so, so explain what that means, A, and, yeah. how, and how you came to that. Well, let's stop there, and then yeah. we'll go to the next step. So <laughs> interpersonal neurobiology is a term I, I made up. Interpersonal refers to what goes on between us, the interpersonal within us. Neurobiology was just to anchor it in science, the science of the brain in this case. And it's a field <clears throat> that I work in where we combine all the fields of science together, you know, math, physics, chemistry, biology, psychology, linguistics, sociology, anthropology, and everything else, we say, what if you made one framework that included all the sciences? So that's what we do, and I've edited over 50 textbooks in this field for the, for the scientists and for the clinicians. For the general public, what I do is I try to translate interpersonal neurobiology, for example, for parenting and how you might raise your kids with this framework, or for clinicians, how they may work, or for the general public. We work in organizations, I work with government officials, and all sorts of folks can take interpersonal neurobiology and apply it in everyday life. So what are the principles of interpersonal neurobiology? You touched on them. One is that the way you see the mind, and we offer a definition of the mind um, as this process that arises from both within your whole body, including the brain, but also, and this is the key difference between us and how most people describe it, we see the mind as also arising in the betweenness like right now, Mark, between me and you, or within a community where there's either belonging and trust or there's not. And you can feel the difference in a group like that. And I could feel it as a person or a therapist <coughs> or mm -hmm. just, you know, a father. You can feel what happens in a family. So that places the mind equally within and between. And you could say, well, how can that be? So the way you say it scientifically is this. There's energy and information that's flowing throughout your body but that information and energy is also flowing between your body and other people's bodies so that the skull and the skin are not barriers for energy and information to flow. So the fundamental unit of the system is energy and information flow. Flow means change. Information is a symbolic pattern of energy. Like if I say 
you know, Baltimore, that's a word. It, it's just a sound, Baltimore, but it is a symbol for something. So it's information. I can go blah, 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 and it's just energy, no symbolizing anything. So we have energy and information, and it flows, it changes. It happens within you and between you. And there's something called an emergent property, like the ocean, for example. It's hydrogen and oxygen making up water, but it's much more than just hydrogen and oxygen. It's a system, and it's called a complex system. And this complex system amazingly has what are called emergent properties. So this is out of science, out of math, actually. What I say is that the mind may be an emergent property, which includes subjective experience, the texture of lived life, the awareness or consciousness we have of that lived life, and also information processing. But then there's a fourth facet of mind, which has a scientific mathematical name called self-organization. Now, once you say that the mind is a self-organizing process, you can ask, well, where is it? And then you can say, it's within you, within your whole body, including the brain, and between you, like in a family, between two people in a family or um, among many people in a family. Or you can then say, well, how does the mind work? Well, if it's a self-organizing process, what math says is that optimizing this function is very, very simple. You differentiate, you allow to be different, like between you and me, Mark, right now. I respect that you're different from me, you respect I'm different from you. That's honoring differences, that's called differentiation. But then we link with respectful, compassionate communication. When you have a system that's linking differentiated parts, you can just name that integration. And amazingly, when a system is integrated, it's harmonious. And when it's not, it goes to chaos or rigidity. So whether you're looking at a brain, and there are tons of studies that show that every disorder of the mind is associated with a disorder of integration in the brain, or you can study well-being. The major studies of well-being in something called the Human Connectome Project show the number one brain factor associated with every measure of well-being they could find is how integrated the brain is. And then as an attachment researcher, what I can tell you is that when you see that a relationship is integrated, that is when parents honor the difference between what their kid is from what they expected and really honor those differences and create compassionate, respectful communication, integrated relationships stimulate growth of integration in the brain, which is the basis of health. Then you look at a community and you say, well, is this community, let's say Baltimore, let's say the United States, you know, is this nation we have or the world, you could say, is this system moving toward chaos or rigidity like our world tends to do these days? Then it's impaired integration. And then you could say, where is integration impaired? Where are we not honoring differences between people's racial backgrounds, their ethnic backgrounds, their religious backgrounds, and then honoring those differences, not just tolerating them, but actually thriving because of them, enjoying the differences, because that differentiation allows integration to create optimal ways of being. And so this is the amazing thing. You say, well, when that's not working, you're in chaos or rigidity like a river, two banks outside the river of well-being, of integration, chaos on one side, rigidity on the other. And when you're in the flow, when you're integrated, you feel this vitality that is flexible, adaptive. It holds the well together of time. It's resilient, called coherent. It's energized and stable. So if you like acronyms like me, that spells faces. Flexible, adaptive, coherent, energized, stable. It's basically <coughs> harmony. So the bottom line is this. With this framework of interpersonal neurobiology, we say whether you're looking at an individual, you can promote integration, or a couple, two people, you can promote integration. You can look at a family, you can promote integration, a school, 
a society and the larger planet. You can look at the issues of the climate or how we relate to each other across nations. And this still applies. This is why we can do this with governments. We can do this with intergovernmental relationships. We can do it with organizations. We can do it with schools. We can do it with families. You can do it with couples. You can do it with an individual. And the integration principle applies. When there's integration, there's well-being. And when you don't have it, you have suffering in the form of chaos or rigidity. So, does that make sense? It does to me. Um, so, as I'm hearing you, a bunch of things flow through my head, different kind of concepts I think that have been around for a while. The Buddhist sense of mindfulness. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. Um, and I just ended up, uh, this weekend I taught with Jack Kornfield, who's a Buddhist oh yeah. scholar. <clears throat> right. For a whole weekend, we were comparing interpersonal neurobiology to Buddhist practice. And it's not just Buddhist practice, but most contemplative practice you can understand through this frame. And I, I, I often make this joke with people, uh, as a saying that we use a lot, which is, have mercy, right? Mm-hmm. Have mercy, right? But then I, my follow-up line is, mercy is a, th- is a theistic myth. The only place it exists is right here, mm-hmm. between exactly. us. Between us, right? right? Totally. Which is very Buberian, Martin Buber. Yeah, that yeah. was his whole philosophy of I and thou. That's where that fits, which fits into a lot of things that Einstein was giving us mathematically yep. about how this universe functions. Right. So what you're saying is it's, you're, in a sense, integrating a lot of that. Yes, it fits beautifully with that, uh, exactly. And even Einstein said <clears throat> it's an optical delusion of consciousness mm-hmm. that we're completely separated from each other. And so we have this vulnerability of the human brain to believe the self is defined by the skull and the skin. And this is what Einstein was getting at. And so in our world, we talk about this thing called we. We say, you do have a self that's within, that's a me, but you also have a self that's between, as you're pointing out, I and thou, that's a we. You don't want to get rid of me. That's not what we're aiming for. Integration would be say, okay, I got a me, but I got a we. How do I remember that? Well, muy, M-W-E in English, at least. <laughs> you can do it that way. In Spanish, it would be yonos. Yeah, you, right. you can do it in every language. It's really fun. I'm going around saying, okay, this is the change in our culture we need. We need a change in consciousness where identity is expanded so that instead of just being, you know, as Mother Teresa said, the problem with humanity is that we, we define our family of concern in a too limited a way. We, we need to allow our sense of identity to be in that within, withinness and betweenness both. Don't get rid of one. Take care of your body with good sleep. You know, eat well. You know, exercise. Enjoy your body. That's all me. Fine. But you're pointing out the I am now part of it. We need to teach kids and adolescents and remind ourselves as adults that our identity is just as equally a betweenness, a, a we. You put them together as a we. Now, here's the challenge. We have these bodies that have inherited the in-group, out-group distinction. And studies called mortality salient studies or terror management studies, what they do is they show when we're threatened, we heighten this thing where we say, are you in my in-group? You know, are we wearing the same clothes? We have the same skin color, same religion. You know, and if you're in my in-group, I'll take care of you with kindness. But if you're in the out-group, I'll shun you or even worse, I'll kill you. I'll treat you like you have no mind. You're just a piece of dirt. This is a sad thing we've acquired over a long period of evolution. So what we have to do is use our consciousness, our way, our cortex, the higher part of brain functions, to rise above the in-group, out-group vulnerability we have. And I think we can do this collectively with the media. I think we can do it with science and schools and families. 
we are ready for the next step in cultural evolution to rise above the vulnerabilities that the human brain has to make us all separate and have us fight each other all the so time. So let me ask you, so, so, so from the theoreticals to the practical, how that works. <clears throat> I mean, what you just described, I was reading a piece the other day, um, actually by Herodotus, and I was reading another piece by, I'm blocking his name right now, it'll come to me in a minute, Chinese philosopher who traveled lands outside the Chinese empire. They wrote very similar stuff in terms of uh, trying to tell their countrymen back home that really what you're seeing out here, we're no different than they are. And I'm saying that to say that it has been part of the human condition from the beginning where I think about stuff that, 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 that stuff that, uh, whether it was inside the, the deep, deep spiritual practices in the Iroquois Nation, the Lakota, Arapaho people that I know well, that you, in, historically, inside the community, you never hit a child, you were kind inside the world, but if you're outside the community, it will kill you. Yeah. It will torture you, which is no different than any other society, really. Right. We've all been like that. Right. So what's the, so what's, so what, so, so, so what's the, so within that theoretical framework you just laid out, how is that applied practically in terms of how we begin to change what we are yeah. and who oh. we are? It is not only a great question, but beautifully stated and a very powerful issue. So let's take it step by step. We talked about genetics, and this is such a universal finding, it's probably embedded in our genes, not just epigenetic adaptations. But embedded in our genes. Embedded in our genes. And what that means is that, uh, you know, if you and I were in cave A and the others from cave B were coming over to get our stuff or, you know, get, you know, take our children and women or whatever and kill them, then we would survive more. We would pass on our genes, you know, if we killed those people, right? So that KB people were a threat to our very survival. And it looks like that's where we've come from. N not just humans, but other primates too, right? So this has probably been going on for about 50 million years. All right, so now we have this situation where we humans have very complex uh, environments we live in, but we grew up in small communities where you did know who was in cave A. You could look at someone's face, you go, I know you, I trust you. And in fact, we have this thing called allo parenting. Allo means other, parenting is you know, taking care of babies and stuff. So that means we, unlike the other primates, share who takes care of the baby. It's not just the mother, it's not just the father. We pick designated others to be assigned that trusting role. So that's a unique thing in our evolution. Sarah Hurdy, H-R-D-Y, writes about it beautifully in her work. So we've evolved then to say, okay, we're collected together in the in-group. I'm gonna figure out looking at your face, getting a feeling for who you are, what you're paying attention to, your intention, your awareness, what you value. That's your mind. I'm gonna learn about your mind, and that may be a precursor actually to knowing my own mind. And then as an in-group member, I trust you, here's my baby. And we work together as a team, we're very collaborative. But just as you're saying, KB people come by, we don't see their minds, we see them as a threat, and all the studies show that when you're threatened, you increase this in-group, out-group distinction. So, you're asking the question, what do we do about this? What studies of the last 20 years have shown is that you can use mind training practices, whether it's something specific an individual does or whether you do it in a classroom, I think you can actually do it in a culture, where you name the in-group, out-group distinction, for example. 
and you name the fact that you can use the mind to change the structure of the brain. Now, people hear that and they go, what? And I'm going to say it again because people say that can't be true. You can use your mind, that is, how you focus attention to change the structure of your brain. So what I think we've come to now with the Internet connecting all these KBA, KB people together, and there's so much tension and so much feeling of threat, we've come to a place in our human evolution on the planet where if we don't take it to the next step where we use the mind to change the brain's genetic vulnerabilities, to keep on saying, oh, you're not like me, you're a different race or different ethnicity, religion, whatever. If we don't rise above that and realize we're all like each other, and in fact, we have such a capacity for collaboration, we need to use the mind in media, in schools, even in science, realize it's not just within your brain, it's within our culture, to allow a more integrated way of living now in this next phase of human cultural evolution. Because cultural evolution is how you're changing the mind to have the brain function differently. Genetic evolution, how the sequence of DNA changes, takes a long time. Epigenetic evolution is fast. And we're now showing that what you do with your mind actually can change even epigenetics. So whether it's epigenetics or changing the structure of the brain of kids in school and kids with their parents, I think what we need to do is make a brain throughout our society that is able to say, you know, I have this feeling of in-group, out-group distinction, but that's my ancient evolutionary roots. I'm going to use my higher brain, my cortex, to actually have that impulse. I have a practice called the wheel of awareness where we, we do this, where I say, oh, yeah, there's that impulse. I can feel that judgment. Oh, she's not like me. No, she's like me. And, you know, I can feel it. And I I bow to it. I say, hello, there you are. Hello, ancient history. But instead of acting on the impulse or denying it, I accept it. I recognize it. And I say, I don't have to identify it with it. I can let it go. And I move to a higher level of our cultural evolution of consciousness. I think this is very possible. You know, I work with parents a lot. Parents can start instilling this. Even if you say the identity we have is a we, not just a me, you start doing that around this planet, you're going to see a tipping point, I believe, where people start realizing that interconnected way of being allows us to bring much more thriving in the world. And that's going to benefit everyone. So you you mentioned during the course of this some I asked a question earlier about how you practically apply this, mm-hmm. and you mentioned in your sessions a wheel, a wheel of awareness, a wheel yeah, of, a wheel of awareness. So let's talk about just a bit about how practically this is applied in in the interaction inside groups and how it's and how you how you manage that. Right. Well, you know, so if consciousness allows change, which you look at all sorts of studies, that seems to be necessary in education, therapy, parenting. And you look at the idea that integration is the basis of well-being, and there's a lot of science behind that. And you say, well, what if you integrated consciousness? Which integrating consciousness sounds kind of weird. So you say, what is that? Well, you see, what's consciousness? It's our experience of knowing. And you can differentiate the knowing from the known. And so if you imagine a wheel with a center hub, and just picture as a metaphor, like a map, that the hub represents the knowing of consciousness, being aware, 
and the rim represents anything you can be aware of. Let's call that the known. So if you go to my website, which is you know drdansiegel.com, go to resources, Wheel of Awareness, we've had like a million people stream this from our website. I just did this last night with a whole group, a very diverse group in Baltimore, where people didn't really know each other before. And then we did the Wheel of Awareness practice. And when people do it, they go through systematically what you see, what you hear, what you smell, what you taste, what you touch. Then you get into the interior of the body. Then you get into mental activities like thoughts and feelings and memories. But then you get to this moment where this spoke of attention, you're moving around this metaphoric wheel. Instead of moving around the rim to the knowns, you actually bend it around toward the hub itself. And then people start experiencing Sometimes they've never done a reflective practice ever before. They start experiencing this awareness of awareness. Now, there's a long line of science behind what I'm about to say, so it's going to sound weird if you don't hear the science, which I talk about in the book Mind. But just to say what people experienced last night, or to give you an example of what happened just recently, I was teaching in Seattle, and a 70-year-old just retired Microsoft engineer, does the practice, never meditated in his life, never in therapy in his life. His therapist wife dragged him to the conference with me, this workshop. He does the practice. We take a break. He comes to the microphone. He goes, I don't know what just happened. What happened with this wheel? And I said, well, can you share? He goes, never before in my life had I had the experience where I walked out in the park during the break. And essentially he says in a very long, long way, but I'll say it in a short way Mm -hmm. here. I saw the gardener watering the flowers and the birds and the butterflies flying around, and I realized it's all us. I am the gardener. I am the butterfly. I am the bird. I'm the water. We're all connected. And he starts crying, this Microsoft engineer. But this happens now. I've done this with Uh 10,000 people systematically, have them report when they're willing to report. And this happens all around the planet. When people drop out of that rim of the knowns, that rim of your separate identity, and get closer to awareness, which in, in science we're calling presence, when they get to this pure awareness, this awareness of just awareness, this being in presence, you open up to this reality that we really are all interconnected. So if someone listening to this does the wheel, tries it out, tries to practice, the practice I do every day, And it just allows me to say, yes, of course I have a body. Yes, of course I have thoughts and feelings and memories. That's fine. I need to make sense of them. I don't deny those things. But I'm also more than just what comes from my memories. I'm more than just my thoughts. I'm also the experience of being aware itself. And if you even ask someone, say, well, try not being aware. I mean, try it right now, Mark. Try to not be aware. You can't. It's impossible. So when you get beneath the rim, And we have a way of describing it scientifically, but let's leave it at the metaphor here. When you get into the hub, then you realize we really are all interconnected. So your in-group, out-group distinction thing, the hostility you have when you're threatened, that's just a rim point. When you drop into the hub and you can get access to that, it's a sense of tranquility and joy. Initially, it may be odd because you've never experienced before. So for some people, it can be a little freaky and unusual and maybe even scary, like, where's all that openness coming? Where's that sense of eternity and infinity coming from? Oh, my gosh. And they jump back to the rim. So that can happen. But when you learn to trust it, you realize how deeply connected we all are. And ultimately, what's amazing about it is it's from this hub, this presence, 
that the natural drive of the mind emerges, which is to create more integration. And integration made visible, it's kindness and compassion. It's the mercy you're talking about. It's the way of actually bringing this sense of tenderness and nurture into the world. Uh, This has to be continued and will be continued. Um, I'm I'm glad we had a chance to meet each other and do this. Thank you, Mark. Great to meet you. We're here with Daniel Siegel, uh, physician, psychiatrist, but more importantly, someone who's gone beyond the narrow confines of those, those definitions. The book is Mind, A Journey to the Heart of a Being Human that we will explore in greater depth. And I want to thank you for joining us in the house today. Thank you. 